Hello, listeners. Welcome to Drunk Book Club. I'm Dorothy. With me, as always, is Dry. Hey, listeners. Last time on Twitter, I, I heard somebody use the phrase for the podcast that it's like, drunk history, but with books. Can that be our new tagline? <laughs> Can we just steal that from the internet? People do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, we kept you waiting long enough, listeners. It's been a minute since we did an Anne Rice novel and you know occasionally we have to return to that well yeah we try to space them out because it's no fun if we just do one thing all the time and also it's tiring but uh yeah so this month we are looking at Exit to Eden but what are you talking about Anne Rice novel it says right here on the cover that this is by Anne Rampling I feel like the cat's somewhat out of the bag, given the subsequent printings. <laughs> I mean, it it doesn't really match up to the works of that, you know, erotic powerhouse, Anne Rucklauer. Excuse you, it was A.N. Rucklauer. Ah, oh, my mistake. <laughs> yeah, so apparently how that came about is that she took the novel to Knopf, which was the one publishing the VC uh, books at the time, and they were like, mm, not All this. All two of them. Yep. No, just one at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they were like... I mean, two, the second one was in the works. Yeah. This would have been while TVL was, like, about to happen. She had been working on the novel and set it aside, and it was after finishing Exit to Eden that she was able to go back and finish it. A very cursed statement that we'll get into. <laughs> but, yeah, basically her editor gave her the go-ahead to take this and shop it around to somebody else under a pen name. and She just... had an editor? No, she did, allegedly. I don't think she had that kind of clout yet to be able to pull the thing. That was in the 90s. So this comes out in 1985 under a different imprint. Yeah, so this is Del. And and who had the uh, Sleeping Beauty books at the time? Somebody else? Uh, It was a third publisher. That's why she has three different pen names. Mm. But I don't remember who that is. I'm still losing my shit over people being shocked at finding out Cassandra Clare is a pen name. I can't. If that's your main objection to Cassandra Clare, adorable. There's there's a bonus episode in that. But not this day. I mean, it's no Ms. Scribe. Well, that's an entire saga, as it is known. Mm-hmm. You went out of your way to make a fancy thing. Yes and no. I mean, I went out of my way, but it was something I was planning to do already, so. So, a basic recipe for this would be a barrel-rested or an old Tom gin, a grapefruit liqueur, and uh, ginger beer. I've garnished it with apple. Now, because this book does have the title Exit to Eden and is all about temptation and sexuality and everything. Before I even started reading it, well, besides the prologue, which I had picked up and put down ages ago. The multiple failed attempts to read the prologue. God. Um, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to use a particular barrel rusted gin called That Old Devil's Bathtub. It has a very good bottle. Yeah, it's got a very good bottle, and Old Tom Gins, if you're not a gin drinker, they tend to be tawny. Um, This is a barrel-rested one. So it's tawny and has um, an almost whiskey-like development of vanilla and spice flavors to it. 
mm-hmm. as opposed to the strongly juniper standard gins, London dries, which most are. So this is a little bit smoother and gentler of a drink than you may be thinking. Like I said, you can use a grapefruit liqueur. If you take any kind of medication, I would recommend an artificial grapefruit flavor. The reason I went with grapefruit is because there was a a vintage liqueur that's no longer in production called Forbidden Fruit. I took the time to recreate this spiced liqueur myself in my home because I'm ridiculous. She took pictures. It was very cute. Yeah, you can find those on Twitter. I, I sort of documented the process. It turned out very nicely. Uh, it's very tasty. It did include actual grapefruit and pomelo peels. I am confident that the quantity that actually makes it into the drink is negligible, so I'm not bothered by taking it. But but like it is worth being aware that grapefruit usually counteracts a number of SSRIs, so like be careful. Yeah, and and it can lead to overdose and bad things. So if you're unsure, you may as well opt for an artificial flavored grapefruit liqueur. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have made this with other just plain grapefruit liqueurs. It's very nice. And ginger beer just because that's hot and spicy. It was spicy. It was nice. I had one. And then because I'm a whippy baby, I'm drinking a Moscato with limoncello, which turns out is what I'm here for. <laughs> It turns out it's a sugar garbage drink, and it's what I want to put in my mouth. Oh, but you're not drinking Bombay gin on ice? No. That was the other option. Uh, because this book is incredibly boring. You, I'm sorry, you didn't want to go out and get us some Sazerac? They misspell Sazerac. It's it's an admittedly nitpicky thing, but she was so mad. It's in New Orleans, and they misspell Sazerac kind of their specialty drink and it the back half of this book is just a travelogue of new orleans it feels germane to the issue uh speaking of which so content warnings up front for new orleans for new orleans (laughs) uh but also this is a sex book so besides the other more specific content warnings just know that we're probably Because this is a porn book, we're going to have to talk about more raunchy stuff than we usually do on this podcast, including a lot of frank talk about sex and bodies. And if you're uncomfy with that, that's okay. But this is maybe not the episode for you. Uh, We'll catch you next time. It's cool. Uh, For folks who want to stick around, more specific content warnings for talk about uh, grooming, underage sex. Badly done BDSM. Really badly done BDSM. A lot of talks, uh, talk of slavery, specifically in badly done BDSM. Mm-hmm. Racist versions of fetishes? I'm not sure how to articulate it. Uh, I will link an article uh, that is really good by, uh, oh gosh, I have to look up their name now. Uh, the This very famous essay about... Uh, fandom slave fic mm. by uh stitches media mix is mm. the name of the website oh yeah i love stitch Stitch yeah. is wonderful yeah I'll, I'll link stitches essay because it it covers a lot of what's going on in this book with the fetishism of chattel slavery yeah um nonsensical business practices mm-hmm. uh an extremely normative narrative despite its trappings of kink and also sexual assault yep 
not and not, a lot of idealization of the act of sexual assault. Right. Like there are there is discussion of rape fantasy, but there is also just sexual assault. So I think that covers most of it. Probably. And also just racism generally. Oh, and in the just, way that Anne do. And just uh mental breaks. Just mental illness. Badly yep. handled. Very poorly handled. So I was doing some reading. And Catholicism. <laughs> Content warning for Catholicism. That's fair. <laughs> so on the Wikipedia page for Exit to Eden, there is this incredibly irritating quote that I, I think some of you uh, may be familiar with, where, you know, people people were admittedly annoying i'm sure because they spent a lot of time asking Anne about her sex life after she wrote this novel and her husband was eventually like she's no more a dominatrix than she is a vampire she's just good at empathizing with people yada 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 blah 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 blah. we'll dig into how this (laughs) that but that so i was kind of content warning for Anne rice content warning for Anne rice uh but so there's kind of an assumption when you read this novel did did she fucking do any research at all uh, well, she actually uh, was apparently friends with John Preston, quite close friends. John Preston was a gay rights activist and BDSM erotica novelist mm-hmm. uh, in the seventies and eighties. Uh, editor for the and editor for the Advocate in the early to mid seventies in San Francisco. And so there are some archive.org screenshots of prism of the night a biography of anne rice by a famous true crime author that's fair <laughs> yeah you know what actually that seems right is it the one who murdered her mom no not that one uh it's, it's, but she did profile the btk killer hmm so that's fun yeah uh that's like atm machine <laughs> i have to read which you is the- definitely what these people are hey oh <laughs> No, I have to read you, like, this whole page, because there are layers. Okay. <laughs> I'm really a writer, and that's it, she insisted. I think meeting those people resulted in closing down the series with three books. I might have kept going if that had not happened. She's talking about the Sleeping Beauty books. Oh, she met people who actually do kink, and now she doesn't want to write her right fantasy anymore because it ruined it for her? <laughs> uh, and then talking about prep on Exit to Eden. One thing uh, prep doesn't exist in this universe. It super doesn't. Prep and aftercare are not concepts in this novel. <laughs> One thing she requested was to meet a real dominatrix. She was willing to pay the hourly rate, whatever it took, just to talk to the woman. She was told she would have to take the hygiene class offered by the di- dominatrix, but she declined. <laughs> I wasn't interested in doing such a thing just to go meet her. <laughs> So she would do whatever it took, except for take this woman's class. Except learn how to be hygienic during sex. She did, however, attempt to order a pair of leather handcuffs to hang on her office wall. (laughs) But ran into resistance from the woman taking her order. She kept asking me what size, and I said it didn't matter, and she kept insisting that I give her a size, like she was making me admit to something personal. So I never got them because I refused to give her the size. Just say size small. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, and did- She doesn't want you to get nerve damage. Mm-hmm. This woman is attempting to do her job correctly. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Nevertheless, 
and did finally acquire an S&M memento, a fan sent her a red and black Cat Nine Tails, which she hung in her office. <clears throat> so that's part one of the many things that is this single page of a novel, <laughs> of a biography. Oh, novel I think works here too. Yeah. Um, a part to do. While Anne was writing about sexual freedom, something was happening to threaten the potential effect of her books. The heavy? AIDS. People in the Castro district were going seriously ill and dying as a result of their sexual activities. And That's a way to phrase that. And this was super inconvenient to her. Mm. Anne was immediately supportive of efforts to assist. She gave out her books to use as fundraisers and decided not to write more pornography. The because dis- that's the problem. No, but the next- the fucking writing on this bi- biography, I Wait, 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 wait. So she's simultaneously considering her books to be part of the problem because pornography is an epidemic and also giving them away as fundraisers. Think about that. Why? I haven't heard this, by the way, listeners. They saved this. I am cruel. I'm experiencing this as one with you. The disease saddened her. <laughs> what? We need to acquire this entire book is what I'm learning. <laughs> this 243 page this is. 243 pages to what year? No, that's that's this. This is page 243. Oh, I'm just wondering what year of her life it goes up to. It was published in 1991. Jesus. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. 29 years ago. Uh-huh. There's a lot. Oh. Several years later, when John Preston learned he was HIV positive, Anne was instantly concerned, calling him whenever test results were due to find out how he was. Creepy. Anne's support for me, John said, took our relationship to new levels. She wanted to feel she wanted him to feel no compunction about using her name in the context of AIDS. So I guess I will give her the smallest line of credit to not being a human monster to an actual real meat human. But also, you know what this makes me mad about in hindsight? That fucking prologue. Mm-hmm. This was before Uh-huh. She knew. Uh-huh, she knew AIDS was happening and was just making a bullshit world. Just, you can't. So all the claims that she was just blissfully ignorant of HIV when writing the prologue to the Vampire Lestat. Bullshit. And like, <laughs> we do have to be a little bit fair to say, in the 70s, it, it was not the, you know, it was no small thing to stick your neck out to be involved in charities and activism work for the queer community. You mean the 80s? Yeah. Fair enough. You were not a human monster to a real human. You just refused to think about the co- the effect of your fiction that you're writing. Yeah, she refuses to complicate or intersect her fiction mm-hmm. with anything except the fun historical eras she likes to fat to. Mm-hmm. Which apparently include colonialism. Yep. Okay, last part I have to read of this page. Ahem. Her books were less about her sexual practices than about the psychology of a woman of trans-gender perspectives who was still a divided self. Here, I'm was- sorry, what? They're saying that cis ladies who are, who are dumb are trans? No, that- Dad- 
This is not the only source I found used that, used that phrase, by the way, a trans hyphen gender woman. A woman who transcends gender. A woman who crosses gender. So basically, I, I like, they're- Then why is she a woman? She's clearly trying to say gender non-conforming, or they are, but like- Except these women are so gender conforming. Extremely, right? Here was someone alter- alternately shy and aggressive, vulnerable and assertive. She thought of her mind as masculine. Yet heterosexual scenes described throughout her novels are clearly the fantasies of a woman. Like many artists, her imagination was a complex array of ideas, desires, and images. Why is it writing like she's dead? (laughs) I don't know. But I had to tell you about that. Uh, Yeah, and the- Oh, we are gonna have to talk more about how she's transing the genders- Boy, howdy. Sorry, the reason I fell down this rabbit hole is I was doing some mild Googling and there's like a statement from 2014 on her Facebook. I did indeed meet sympathetic members of the BDSM community and found them inspiring and kind. My best friend at the time of writing was John Preston, a very famous S&M erotic novelist. You, you did not! Clearly you didn't! Because you wouldn't take one class on hygiene! Which is in place partly probably to prevent you from licking the person. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the fantastic odyssey that I went on with this book, which was more fun than reading the actual book. Oh, God. So now we have to explain the book. Yeah. So this Lisa, is... Lisa is hot. She sure is. Lisa has never felt beautiful. But she is Ebony Darkness Dementia Raven Way. It is your most cursed Tumblr post is just that. I have a couple of viral Tumblr posts and they haunt my life and fill me with regret because they're all my shittiest posts. And one of them them is just where I posted the opening, like the first page of this fucking book in which Lisa describes herself in a manner not dissimilar from the, from the beginning of every chapter of my immortal. Would you like me to read it to the audience? Sure. <clears throat> my name is Lisa. I'm five foot nine. My hair is long Put and it's dark brown. Mm-hmm. I wear leather a great deal. High heel boots all or er, high boots always, and sometimes glove soft vests and even leather skirts now and then. And I wear lace, especially when I can find the kind I like. Intricate. Very old-fashioned lace, snow white. I have light skin that tans easily, large breasts, and long legs. And though I don't feel beautiful and never have, I know that I am. If I wasn't, I wouldn't be a trainer at the club. Which directly contradicts something said later on, by the way. Hey, hey, if you're doing Lisa's voice, can I do Elliot's? Oh, God. Yes! Yes, you may. (laughs) Elliot, the curse on all of us. (laughs) I was ready to empathize with Lisa. That's a terrible introduction. But her character, in abstract, is not without merit. Yeah. Like, but I was willing to be on board and give a vague shit about Lisa. The problem with that introduction is this sort of reflexive move to separate oneself from vanity when writing a woman 
Lestat has identical introductions. He constantly loves to talk about what he's wearing, how hot he is, how great he is. And it works and makes sense for him as a character because his arrogance and his consciousness of his physicality are so much a part of him. But the reflexive move for her to describe herself in depth and then mention that, oh, but I don't think I'm hot, makes it ring hollow and weird. Pause. I stumbled into a lot of secondary sources about Anne Rice this evening. What? <laughs> I have a passage from the gothic world of Anne Rice. Why do you bedevil me so? Because <laughs> I love you and also it's really funny. <laughs> this is the bad porn book. <laughs> I haven't even told you the plot yet. With Lisa, Anne felt she actually made the breakthrough she had desired in her Roclair series, by presenting a developed female perspective. Developed, all right. Looking back, she realized that she had hidden behind the guise of a gay man, which is the character she talked about identifying with in um, the Sleeping Beauty trilogy, to write, and now she wanted to change that. She reached for authentic feeling and gave Lisa her own beliefs about sexual outlaws, transgender experiences, and the inability to view sexual play between consenting adults as deviant or wrong. Pegging isn't trans. Mm-hmm. Inherently. I have to read the rest of this, this paragraph just because it's fucking cursed. She felt that Exit to Eden was a bold novel, and she was proud to have it published in hardcover in America. <laughs> in addition, while creating Elliot, she found the voice that took her back to her vampires. <laughs> Fucking Elliot. Anyway, about Lisa. So the shtick with Lisa is that she's this awesome dominatrix businesswoman. Girl boss. Hashtag girl boss. Fucking if this novel had been written today. Who runs the club. Like, it. it's also weird because this feels very stream of consciousness written. Where it starts off with mentioning that she's the trainer at- she's a trainer at the club. As opposed to the owner of the club, which is what she is. Which... Right, who runs everything. The like, one there, in... there is the unnamed, extremely rich financial source. But, like, functionally, she is the president and owner of the club. The most intensely kinky, perfectly run BDSM island on the planet. Existing, of course, in the benighted Caribbean. You know, the Caribbean. Where there are no laws. It's just when a fun white people place. do things. Exactly. It's a fun playground for, for white people where consequences aren't a thing. But don't worry, everything is safe. Except when somebody fucks up. And there's no way to abuse the slaves, which is the word they use, except when somebody does, who has authority. And they never hire underage people, except when they accidentally do. And they've never hired anyone who is coerced into the work, except the times they have, but they paid them off. So, you know, besides all of that, it's working great. It's working out great. And, um, of course, there are a lot of wannabe versions of the club in Amsterdam and whatnot. And in California. Like, that's the novel. Uh, This novel fucking hates California. And, but it also feels, she was 44 at the time of writing this. 44. Mm -hmm. That's a lot older than me. It feels cruel to Mr. Bright to compare it. But, like, again, there's that, that that moment of, you were how old when you wrote this thing I'd be more okay with if you were 19? Yeah. 
but she was 44 and it kind of shows in that her constant jabs at Berkeley liberals feel very specifically centered in her experiences of when she dropped out of a PhD program in the 60s, 70s because she was not interested in it. Because she, at, she but yeah. specifically because she described herself at that time as a very conservative person and specifically she felt a lot of contempt for people who were doing drugs and getting high and expanding their minds when she was sitting there at her typewriter doing the real intellectual work. Now, the anti-intellectualism of Anne Rice is a whole other thing. That's uh, your a future paper for you, I'm sure. But it really, a lot of her, the way she discusses California, and specifically the college experience in California, feels out of time and very hippie-ish. She was born in the 40s. She hit California during the 60s. And the way she describes college experiences feels very much part of the hippie movement. Even though this is these are characters who are like under 30 in the 80s. An entirely different generation, yeah. Like just enough different that well, that her eye-rolling at Berkeley liberals. Well, as she has apparently admitted in so many words, Lisa is just her own opinions. Just a mouthpiece for her own opinions. Lisa looks like her, too. Only hotter. Oh my god, it's so uncomfortable. Lisa is just this embarrassing titty lady self-insert. Like, I don't know if y'all have ever seen the, the cover image, that uh, the author photo, that our... Included with early editions of Interview with the Vampire. But y'all. The long dark hair and mm-hmm. the turf bangs. So, um, but Lisa is feeling ennui. Mm-hmm. She went home and she visited her family, none of whom get a single line. Nope, but, but they exist. But she has many feelings, I guess, about them. She and then, has daddy issues. And then she watched a movie on Laserdisc called Angelo, My Love. And we get multiple synopses of this movie Uh uh-huh because Anne's doing that painfully awkward thing where she's trying to situate something in the real world by way of things that are definitely not going to become dated within a week no and most importantly while she's there she sees a dude at a bar but he's like normal no she sees a production of cats she does see a production of Cats. <laughs> and also some off-Broadway shows. You know, some of those. And this is one of those things where Anne's unhipness really jumps out. Where it becomes just painfully apparent how not hip she is and how unwilling she is to actually do any work. To even make up an off-Broadway show. Mm-hmm. Like, you could make one up. Yeah. This shit is all in print. Nobody gives a shit. Mm-hmm. It was so avant-garde that you haven't heard of it and it was never recorded. But no. That that sort of... I mean, the, the reference to cats does make this kind of timeless. <laughs> oh, what a cursed sentence. Oh, what a cursed... A lot of this novel is, is nothing happening. Deep intellectual T.S. Eliot fan. Yeah, that's it. The wasteland, yo. <laughs> so Lisa the is feeling ennui. Then she goes back to to the club she's still feeling ennui she doesn't fuck or do nothing and then we switch perspectives mm-hmm. yeah this is a dual perspective novel except when it gets tired of doing that 
it, it tried to balance it in the early chapters and then it just totally collapses yep. structurally and it's really obnoxious. I hate that she refuses to alternate. Which which is, we should note, a fair for those of you not familiar, a pretty standard format for romance novels. Yeah, if you're doing a dual perspective book, it doesn't have to be one-to-one chapter-wise, but it's a good idea. And this is just so painfully lopsided that it feels awkward when we do dip back in to, to Lisa. Right, it, like, it doesn't seem to have been written that way, but it feels so much like it was just written as Elliot, and then the other, then the Lisa stuff was tacked on after the fact. Except Elliot somehow also feels tacked on. I can see a version where it works and was written from Elliot's perspective, but that's not what we got. Mm-hmm. Because Elliot's perspective also sucks. Elliot is like a badass photojournalist who has one extremely incongruous random quirk. He fucks dudes. And also is the worst person on the face of the fucking planet. He sucks so much. Okay, I want you and all- also is allegedly submissive. Allegedly. I want you all to imagine Lestat with all the soft boy parts of him excised. So, Lestat. Modern Lestat. Yeah, basically. <laughs> like, if you smushed Lisa and, and Elliot together, you would have Lestat, basically. I, at one point, put a note in the margins of uh, the book that was just, why did you bother writing two characters? Mm-hmm. Because 90% of the conversations in this book are just them fapping to one another and agreeing. Not literally fapping, because that would be interesting. Yeah, it's it's very, it's, they're not arguments so much as they are these intensely long these, polemics. By Elliot. In which Lisa gets to say, oh, yes, yes. Yep. Yes, I've always agreed with that. Totally. But thank goodness you're here to say it. And you might think to yourself, well, this is interesting because it's about, you know, a woman who's, a, you know, a, a, a woman who is a dom and a submissive guy. Like, that's not the most outlandish thing in the world, but it's something, I suppose. Except, no, Elliot comes to the island thinking that he wants to be a a full-time submissive. And I gotta call bullshit on that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But in fact, what he really wanted was to be a full-time manly man, and he was just confused and traumatized about some stuff that happened. And also, specifically, he wants to commit rape. Yeah, there's um, um, there's also a taboo against referring to the island as therapeutic. So there's a lot when Elliot comes to the island that is... So obviously, master-servant fantasy is a... Like, it tries to frame it as based in a Greek fetish. Mm-hmm. It is very clearly not because there's the explicit imagery of being brought over on a ship in a crowded hold and going up in chains on an auction block and this and incredible- being chased across the sands nude and mm-hmm. and being objectified by the audience but Elliot's the most special boy in the most boring way possible mm-hmm. yeah and it, it's in, it's all incredibly loaded in the worst way because like I, I, you know, in the caribbean like obviously master like, servant pet play is not inconsiderate inconsiderable part of bdsm yeah and for a lot of people master servant is totally a thing the use of slave is charged but individuals but people, some yeah. people some people use that as uh-huh. the definition of their relationship neither of us are involved in the bdsm community as a whole but uh are, 
interests are tuned that way, shall we say. <laughs> we have some knowledge of it. But peripherally, not mm-hmm. through practice. Yeah. This is not praxis. Yeah, so take so a grain I of salt. apologize if we say something insensitive. We're trying to be aware. But yeah, so it's not even... The, the chattel slavery stuff is one of the earliest ver- t- versions of a thing that will happen over and over throughout this book is where it is saying that it is a safe and consensual ethical version of a kink only to immediately do the most ver- damaging version of it that there is. Yeah. Because, again, there's all of this lip service to the island having these extremely strict vetting protocols so that everything is super safe for the employees, which is what the slaves are because it's a tourist resort where you can go there and just use people which okay so it's sex work uh-huh elliot has signed up for a two-year contract doing sex work where everyone's naked all the time and also and also gets golden bracelets with a serial number on them that is keyed to your belongings that you brought that no one on the whole island is supposed to be able to access except you when you leave. And he's being paid a handsome sum of $100,000, which really only works out to 50k a year. And I know that's a lot in 1985, but... Considering how much they play up the wealth porn yeah. aspect of this, yeah. Because this is Anne Rice, so everything's wealth porn. I feel like 100k just sounded like a big number, but she didn't really think through the, the, the particulars. That... Right. Because, like she mentions, people come to this and their li- their whole lives, their career tracks are thrown off. Like, yeah. It's a big commitment. Like, the one of the other people who's coming to the island at this time is a news anchor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kitty Cantwell. Which is a name. It really With is. With a K. Kitty Cantwell. I, I, feel like the, I feel like it was a porno name in an earlier draft. Like, Kitty Cantwell or something. Uh-huh. Do you think that her parents really hated her and her middle name was Catherine? With a K? Well, I mean, her first name is Pussy, so... But, like, I feel like the original draft had this character be named Pussy Cantwell. Mm-hmm. And then changed it to Kitty Cantwell. So, yeah, there's just an intense fetishization of shadow slavery, specifically in the context of the triangle trade and the transatlantic slave trade. And it's there. It's just there. And having most of the characters be white on the island does not help. I didn't see a single person of color there. There was somebody who was described as Olive Mm -hmm. and Greek. And they get subjugated, so. Yep. So that's where we're at. Lisa comes back from her vacation. She's just feeling out of sorts. And she's the worst fucking boss I've ever heard of. I have worked with people like this. I hate Lisa. Once we get to her workplace. (laughs) She's not good at it. And, like, we're supposed to take it as read that it's because she is having this deep emotional turmoil in her soul, but it's hard to buy because we're it's so reliant on telling us yeah. how good she was before. We never see her actually operating. Ever. The only thing we actually see her doing is an interlude into when she was working as a submissive in the past. Which during is... During college. The best scene in the book. It is. And it's just clothing porn, but it's very well done clothing porn. Right, because it's highly sensory. In and a then way. there's no fucking in that scene. Uh-huh. He doesn't even get her off. Nope. 
it would just it's the clothing porn and then it cuts to afterwards and like this it's just the scene of her being laced up into a bustier is quite a well-written scene and then um her arms are laced together mm-hmm. and then it, it but then it's not about it doesn't carry through like you said it just it cuts to after he has fucked her and so- i guess the point is to be that like the experience of this paraphernalia is more erotic than, you know, any kind of... Well, and it's also the contrast with her outside clothes, mm-hmm. with the guy who arranged her contracts with this place, cut off her, which I would not stand for. Excuse you, paid money for those clothes. Right. Clothes are expensive. Mm-hmm. You, you arrange that beforehand so that you know you're going to have some clothes shredded there once you're okay with that. Right. But, so yeah, Lisa is just sort of faffing about and not doing any of the administrative tasks that are clearly very important to be done. And also, she has this... She's got buddies. Well, and... With her? Diana. And Diana. Who comes to nothing. I was disappointed because I thought they were going to do something terrible with Diana. And then they don't even do that. Right. Like, you think she's being set up to be the evil, stabby, jealous lesbian. But it's not even that. They just do nothing with this character. Because she's apparently been fairly, sounds like, pretty exclusively with uh, with Lisa for four years. And is all really distraught when she leaves the island. And I guess this is to show that Lisa is desirable and also that she's bi, which makes her kinky. Uh, and then she gets sent away because Lisa is distraught and we never hear of her again. We get one explainer. Mm-hmm. That she's off being worked somewhere. Don't worry about it. And once again, and, like she reacts explicitly with dismay at being sent to be worked, but because slaves on the island are trained to quote unquote have no preferences, it's still fine that Lisa does this and specifically sends her to a person that she doesn't want to work with, who has specifically behaved in a predatory manner to her previously, and that she had specifically and explicitly been excluded from having to work with. And, like, they throw in a saving throw real late in the novel that actually there are safety measures in place. So if a if somebody who is signed up as an employee gets in too deep, you know, th- their trainers will just know when that point is. But None of these people are trained. Mm-hmm. Therapists of any kind. Nope. And I've heard doms talk about how they sometimes push their submissives further than they have agreed to go because they they've been together so long they have this sense of when they need to be pushed into something a little bit more which i don't know about but but this is all transactional right exactly this is transactional sex work and they do not have safe words and they do not have aftercare no because these people just sign away two years of their life for the experience of idk you get fucked a lot mm-hmm but the fucking is so secondary to it. Yeah. So Elliot comes to the island and he behaves like a little shit because he's being written in from a different book. Mm-hmm. Like, this island screens for only the most perfectly, exquisitely trained and and self-controlled sex workers on the planet. And then Elliot gets in and he's literally incapable of controlling himself. At every moment, Elliot is just behaving like a smirky little shit. And thinking about how much he hates every man around. When he, when he primarily fucks dudes. Right. There's this, there's much to do at the beginning of the novel about how he's really uncomfortable 
being do- uh, dominated by women, which is clearly set up for the whole, well, he just needs to find the right one. But like, Well, you know, he had such a weak mother. God. God. And his first time was so traumatic at the hands of his father. Not that his father fucked him. His father just arranged for a couple of female sex workers. Mm-hmm. But, like, he never... So he has ostensibly been do- spending several years as a fairly full-time sub with with no, male... No. He's been a tourist. Fair. And somehow he talks like the best male dom in the business who runs a place called The House. Martin Halifax. Proto-Marius, we call him. Into, like, just vouching for him to come work at the island for two years with a totally unbroken maximum time-length contract. Mm-hmm. This place that is reputed to be the most intense version of this for people who are, like, lifestyle BDSM people. And he's doing this because something went sad for him one time. And more perplexingly, again, I reiterate, this is a porn novel, and Elliot is never into any of the things that happened to him. Like, it's almost exclusively humiliation play, and he- Well, but because that's the most hurtful thing to him. Mm-hmm. So we gotta push it. They never reach that point of, like, breakdown and and satisfaction or joy. Yeah, no, th- there's no payoff for any of it. Because that's not what he really needs. What he really needs is the love of a good woman. But it's very weirdly frustrating how vanilla the club is. Because Elliot behaves sassy upon arriving. Mm-hmm. So, as part of the system of control, because this is like a cult. They single him out and decide to break him down emotionally, along with a couple of other people who have made minor infractions that are totally understandable at this stage. Including being nervous about it. And so he is assigned to five days cleaning the latrines. So I'm sitting here going, okay, this is going to be piss play. All right. Strapping in for piss play. Piss play is going to happen here. (laughs) Lisa steps up and is like, no, don't send him to do piss play because I want to fuck him. Mm-hmm. Lisa, the owner of the place. And then her, like, everybody who works up with her as disciplinarians and is in charge of, like, organizing this and keeping this humming smoothly is like, he really needs to... We, we can't be breaking the system, otherwise... And she acts pissy about it and makes them reduce it to three days because she is just so hot for that cock. Mm-hmm. For this nondescript, handsome, blonde man. Who apparently towers over her all the time, even though she's 5'9 and always wears six-inch heels. How tall is this monster man? Confuse. Like, she should be six foot three at all times. Mm-hmm. But she's all like, no, don't make him clean the latrines. And then he has to go clean the latrines for one day before she then demands that he be released from that. Mm-hmm. So that she can fuck him. But, like, he's actually cleaning the latrines. And occasionally being kicked from the sounds of it. But, like, he doesn't have to be the latrine. There's no... Like, he doesn't have to clean it with his tongue. It's very... It's... It's weirdly mundane and boring. I mean, or possibly, I've been incredibly scarred by... by adjacency to hentai. But I feel like... I'm not even into piss stuff. But I feel like this is the obvious moment for piss stuff to happen. Right? Like, I feel like that's what 
the implication is here. Right, like, this is not... That like, Elliot has come here on a boat. And so he should do whatever it takes because of the implication. You know, the implication. <laughs> well, you say that, but but then we get to the... To... And then after one day, he, he stops having to do the job he was assigned to do because she wants to fuck him. And then they fuck, it's boring. Yeah, and then because of the implication... Well, because of the implications, you did forget that what there is one brief scene of pegging. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. It really doesn't. They fully engage in the myth of the dib- double-ended dildo. And Without he- a harness. Yeah. Yeah, she just... But, she- like, specifically, he has a fetish for women in cotton nighties, and that's what she wears. Because he's not really about super kinky woman is the thing. What he really wants is the down-to-earth real woman. And that he's never been able to access through this system. And it's honestly really upsetting because basically from the moment he starts feeling attracted to her, he, he starts talking about her in really violent language. Yeah, just filled with rage. Like this desire to grab her or smack her or, you know, to force her down in a way that's just like, this is not endearing to me at all. No, it doesn't feel like a sexy power play. Mm-hmm. In this book that is entirely about allegedly consensual power exchange. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Because he never voices these things to her in a way that's actually about them communicating. Because this novel doesn't seem to understand. It theoretically understands. Because lip service is just this sweaty sheen on top of this novel. How important communication is to any kind of of play it during sex, but it doesn't really understand it when it gets down to the nitty gritty of it. It's very frustrating to me how we get mention of the bracelet that represents the sum total of his identity on the island and that connects him with his belongings and his possessions and also simultaneously marks him in his position of servitude just to establish its existence and then he never thinks about it again. It stops being mentioned immediately and I don't know when it goes away and it feels like it should be a weighty talisman. Right. Because again, this is Anne Rice, the person who was no, who made her name writing sensory details. But we never feel the weight of it on his wrist. Mm-hmm. We never see it glint in the light. Despite the fact that it's the only thing that he is wearing. It's very frustrating to me. Which, which, by the way, surely nudity would get boring. Just being surrounded by well, floppy dongs and boobs she, all the time. She says she specifically is not into slaves having any kind of clothing because a naked slave burns like a flame. So. Um, her bedroom is decorated in African and Haitian idols and stuff. The exoticism just keeps on trucking on. Yeah. Yeah. The, and... That is the level of detail that's given to them. And then after fucking for a while, they go down to the carnival. To the arcade. The, right. That's on the island. Uh, and, that's... and the darn feminists keep trying to get in there. <sighs> Gosh dang it. Gosh the dang darn feminists. feminists. Um, the arcade is where they have extremely tame and boring uh, games like throw the sticky ball at my dick. <laughs> Which is the funniest fucking image. Like ring around the dick. <laughs> like, they're just playing ring toss with people's dicks. 
that is the level of intense kink play that she's come up with here. By the way, if is you know those toddler toys with the rings? What if penis? <laughs> but penis. <laughs> Anne can't think of anything for women to do, so they're not there. Like Anne cannot think of anything for a body without a dick to do. No, no, they serve some drinks and clean up. No, they're not allowed there yet. That That's only right. gets allowed at the end. You have to do some some shifts as a drink slavey there before you can per- participate in the extremely masculine environment of ring toss games on the dickies. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All of the, all of the lady slaves are out raking trash on the beach and not getting suntanned or su- sunburned, I guess. I want to know who the, the SPF slave is. This this brave woman who goes around just lathering constantly, <laughs> makes just, the lap on the beach and goes again. You just assume it's a woman. <laughs> yes, because all the dicks are busy in the rape pit. Are we putting SPF on the dicks? Can those sunburn? I genuinely don't know, and now I'm finding the European <laughs> ruined my Google search history we, forever. We don't want any blistered taints is the thing. Which means, of course, that I now now force us to talk about the rape pit. Yes, but also in this fun environment of, of toss a ring around the dick, there is also a rape pit where it's just wrestling, but... But the end goal is to rape your opponent. To stick it in and come. But but it's good because it's consequence-free. Naturally, Elliot participates and wins because... Which is the only time that he has on-screen sex with a man. It's presented as, like, he explicitly philosophizes to us about how valuable it would be if every guy in his life could occasionally just do a rape. Like, with no consequences and no hard feelings, brah. Okay, so now we gotta get up on the other soapbox, because the Wikipedia for this book talks about this as basically a a movement against anti-sex feminism of the 80s, and eventually what we're going to get to with the long polemics in the back half of the book is, this is about fiction as a safe space, basically, except using BDSM play. But she thinks that, and that's a fucking discourse that's tired all the time forever, Person, but personally, I can see the you know that there is an ethical version of safe space fantasy, and it largely involves a place for people who are victims and marginalized to work out the potential like reactions to traumatic things that happen in the real world, not for perpetrators and aggressors to live out their fantasies that they could very easily go out and do to other people. But, like, he wouldn't have to rape other people if he could just rape people. If he can rape people here, he won't have to rape people elsewhere. Win, win, win. Elliot sucks. He's really bad. Oh, I hate him. And I hate... I hate... Fucking reading this book is like reading one of those loaded trap mines on Twitter. Where you're like... I agree with this in an abstract, but do you mean it like consent, uh, consenting adults are good? Or do you mean it like 40-year-olds should be able to for- fuck 14-year-olds? That's the experience of reading this book. And they, this book 100% means the 40-year-olds fucking 14-year-olds thing. Mm-hmm. Like, spoiler alert. 
Then, unfortunately, a teenager has gotten in past our crack security. And our mad scientist who can apparently detect teenagers via vagina measurements has detected her. And um, she she's a rude little bitch who says the F word, so we send her home. Mm-hmm. And there is much, and there's some sort of conspiracy. She was sent here by a money-grubbing slave dealer named Ari. No, it's fine. She just switched with her sister at the last minute, who was the real applicant. It's not fine. And everybody was apparently down for that. Mm-hmm. But, like, there's this lengthy discussion of when she probably first ha- first masturbated. So, so probably she masturbated when she was 11. So, really, we shouldn't be restricting the 16-year-old from engaging in a two-year, like, right, 100% full-time contract as a submissive. They- Anne Rice never uses the word submissive. She uses the word masochist exclusively. Yeah, she does not seem to understand the concept of people who would be into power plays, but not pain play. Because she locates, well, also she locates humiliation within the realm of pain. The worst part of that whole teenager thing is that it, it fully does, like, technically the rule of the club is nobody under 21 because they're trying to avoid a scandal, but it's fully couched in this hypocrite. We know we're hypocritical, but we're really bowing to the mean, mean world. Uh Uh-huh. Because she's like, well, I had my first orgasm when I was eight, and I've been fucking since I was a teenager, and that somehow- But it fucked Lisa up is the thing. Right. For some reason, this novel equates having had sex with being mature- Or just having an orgasm. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, toddlers do that. Guess what? (laughs) No. There's not- It's not- like, it, they full-on bring out the, well, how young was she when she started having her period thing? And I'm like, that's the shit that cults do. <laughs> like, it's it's upsetting. It's just upsetting. And so disingenuous. And knowing that Rice actively supported lowering the age of consent to 14 in specific defense of this guy who was molesting boys in his care and... It's just the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's one of those things where in abstract, there's a lot of stuff in here about sexual freedom and consenting adults and how kink can be healing for people that is really hard to take as in as good will as I might with another author because I know a lot about Anne Rice's personal philosophy. But, you know, she had a cat of nine tails somebody gave her on her wall. That's true. That's like the same thing. Why wouldn't you just say asides for the fucking handcuffs? We can't. Because she's Anne Rice. Because that would be implying that she might actually use them and that's just dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, so then uh, Lisa half-acidly deals with this problem, but not really because she's just literally blowing off her job at all times. Mm-hmm. She just refuses to do her job. Again, we're supposed to take it as as some tor- like inner torment on her part because she's falling in love with Elliot or whatever. But we've never seen her not be shit at her job, so... So she just sucks at her job. She steals Elliot's stuff, wears his clothes, looks through all of his things. Remember, this is the thing that is supposed to 100% not be allowed. Mm-hmm. And then she kidnaps him. Yup. But to New Orleans! And then the book becomes a tourist destination guide. Oh, God. It was boring before, but now it's really boring. 
because it's just a list of places Anne Rice thinks that your travel agent should book you to when you visit New Orleans next, interspersed with these masturbatory segments on sexual freedom, where these characters just yap at one another while drunk. The best way to discuss serious things. Because of this book, I had to learn about Pretty Baby existing, and I resent it for that. I can't believe you didn't know about Pretty Baby. Right? Because I was a terrible teenager and was vicariously living through all of the books about traumatized teenagers, which I wasn't but wished I was because I was terrible. Well, this was a movie. Uh Uh-huh. Excuse me. Books and movies, which I read about secondhand because I'd be murdered if I actually tried to rent those. So, yeah, we get, among other things, a long digression about Pretty Baby, which is one of the movies that severely traumatized Brooke Shields and and left her deeply frightened of sex and um, inadvertently contributed to the poor woman losing her virginity to Dean Cain. And no one should have to go through that. No one. No one should have to fuck Dean Cain. But it turns into this faff where they'll walk around town, Lisa will wear something that Elliot can grope her through. It won't make any sense. They'll go to a tourist location. They'll make out. Elliot will talk at length about something while not thinking very hard about why Lisa seems so jumpy at all times, and Lisa will nod enthusiastically. And we get chapter titles that just make no sense, but at this point, the even vague attempts to keep the narrative split between the two characters completely break down and it just starts to be Elliot 24-7 it's really weird because they spend like several days in New Orleans and then later it's mentioned that they spend another four days in Texas but the overall length of their trip is described as five days now now it's five days dot 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 or maybe more no no later it's described as five days Elliot is feeling emotional torment on account of he is in love with Lisa. They're doing a lot of fucking where she's a sub. Which, here's the thing, if this was a better written book, I would say, oh, this is actually what being a sub is like, because she technically has all the power in this scenario and the ability to call it off at any time, but she's willingly letting him pick her clothes and, like, decide what they do in bed and decide where they go, and she... She's letting off her stress by kind of handing over all the decision-making power to him, even though she can call it quits at any time. But that's, but it's this book. It's not a well-written book. And that's not what's happening. Uh, But I want to read you a description of how Elliot looks at Lisa. I could feel her coming closer, as if she affected the air around her. Feel her perfume before I smelled it feel that force again when I saw her angular shadow in the corner of my eye. I inclined my head to the side rather deliberately and glanced down at her. Remember, she always wears fucking high heels. Sucking up her appearance before I looked straight ahead. Shiny little pointed toes peeking out of the pant legs. High heels. Pants tight enough in her crotch to make her feel the seam between her legs. Now y'all... In my neck of the woods, we have a word for that. It's called camel toe. That sexy velvet camel toe. Yeah, she's wearing a purple velvet man's suit. My favorite of Anne's fucking affectations that has lasted 40 years. Where she describes a suit that a woman owns that was made for her. 
as a man's suit. I think she just means pantsuit. I guess she thinks Hillary Clinton is walking around in men's suits. <laughs> I saw her hand move and I thought I can't stand it. That tense. She has to touch me. I have to touch her. Rudy Valentino, the sheik, is going to kidnap her and take her off to his tent in the desert. A notoriously rapey film. Rapey and racist. Yes, but neither of us moved. Follow me, she said, snapping her fingers lazily, the light glinting on her fingernails for a second, and she turned and went through the pair of double doors. I promise I'm getting to the point. It was the parlor I'd glimpsed last night. I watched the easy shift of her little hips. Wanted to touch the back of her naked neck. She looked like a little mannequin in the suit. I mean a baby man. A supernatural creature. Something not a woman, yet just as little and lovable and soft. <laughs> Can you imagine anything sexier? A baby man? Oh. A baby man. A baby man. <laughs> um. So they, they tool around and discuss how... No act between consenting adults could ever be wrong, and how it's super wild that they ended up here given their literally diametrically opposed upbringings. And then it pisses me off. Um, they buy some quilts in Texas. (laughs) Oh, are we gonna do Catholicism? No. I have to talk about... Are we gonna do not Catholicism? That's pulchritudinously fuckable. Uh, the worst description I've ever read in a book. Uh Uh-huh. Where Elliot says that she is pulchritudinously fuckable, which I think is the author attempting to do, like, a rapid register shift between this extremely high level of language and this very low, gritty level. And also, Lisa likes to check out the trans. Yeah. Don't worry, I found it. A content warning for some pretty nasty transphobia. Yeah, we forgot that at the beginning. That that Anne clearly thinks is her being progressive. (sighs) <sighs> so Lisa likes to go to uh, female impersonator shows, basically. And although she talks a lot about how the women she sees are mostly trans women who are trans. Right, but yeah. But but in the worst way possible, mm-hmm. language-wise. Yep. Um, Before we left New Orleans, she said, we had to make the transsexual shows on bourbon, the really raunchy ones with the female impersonators who are actually taking hormone shots and getting operations to turn them into women. She loved those shows. You must be kidding, I said. I wouldn't get caught in those joints. What are you talking about? She said. She was furious. Those people are putting their sexual principles on the line. They're acting out their fantasies. They are willing to be freaks. Yes, but those are dives, tourist joints. How far from the elegance of the club can you get? Doesn't make any difference, she said. Elegance is just a form of control. I like those joints. I feel like a goddamn female impersonator and I like to watch them. Because she is transgendered. I'm gonna throw this book at you. No! It's full on the energy of Anne saying she feels gay though, right? Uh Uh-huh. No, because I feel like she half read some Butler at one point before quitting her PhD program. Mm -hmm. She got a master's. I'll stop being petty. But like obviously there's waters and a lot of trans and queer people who ascribe to 
filth and embracing the label of freak, but Anne doesn't get to talk about it like that. <coughs> yeah. A cis woman does not get to talk about it as, oh, they're so brave for being so freakish out where everybody can see. Fuck off. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, we find out that Elliot, um, Elliot's whole trauma goes back to the time he did literally nothing to prevent somebody from dying. Oh my god, Elliot's the worst. He's the worst fucking person, and also he's been just watching people get raped and murdered in war zones because, um, fun. Yeah, and there's, once again- He's also got a book called Beirut 24 Hours that took nine months to make. (laughs) Do you see? Well, and, like, there's almost something there with- when she's talking about- Berkeley liberal talk about basically she's talking about uh, performative wokeness or whatever and talking about how isn't it just sad the crisis that's happening over there and where it's you're not actually doing any kind of activism you're over there doing tourist Which, work okay but the entire structure of the club is based in orientalism right exactly like it's it's once again this thing of you pointed it out with no self-reflection it's it's like this talk about consenting adults when you haven't gotten your own house in order basically um bdsm will save the world there's some racist uh description of some young people who work for the hotel they're at who are referred to with what i'm not aren't quite slurs but sure are some offensively racist language Uh uh-huh like i feel like you're not supposed to use in fact we're not that word now racist like, it's not the N-word, it's the M-word. And in that very exoticized, but gosh, weren't they so beautiful. Because um, Elliot does the cinnamon challenge. In what's supposed, what sounds painful, I don't think <laughs> you're supposed to put cinnamon, cinnamon on your labia. <laughs> I'm just am imagining Elliot just guzzling the, the raw cinnamon and choking and puking. <laughs> Yeah, so he gets cinnamon and butter and eats her out, and this is supposed and blindfolds her while he does it, and this is supposed to be like the most wildly sexual thing that they've done, and I don't because clearly it's because this is all driving towards it's him asserting himself as a real man, and she gets to let go and admit that she didn't really want to be a dom, she wanted to be a sub the whole like full time because what is a switch? Are they real? Do they exist? We don't think so. <laughs> Uh, they tour some plantations because they're both super into that. Yup. Again, after to- all this talk about how it's it's bullshit when, when white people treat, you know, people of color's struggles and war zones as if they are playgrounds of touristry. Anyway, let's go tour some plantations, you guys. Woohoo! They go hang out in the Walmart where Lasad is definitely also... <laughs> Just chillin'. Okay, but the Elliot absolutely pulls literally the same line as Lestat about how, wow, he's never found a woman he considered actually interesting as a person before. Oh no, there's a worse bit right next to the, the discount store talk, which is, <clears throat> conversation about the kind of woman I always thought I'd marry. Some primitive woman, deeply foreign. Like the woman I've lived with briefly in Saigon, waiting on me hand and foot and never asking me any questions. Goethe's flower girl, Gauguin's Tahitians. Wow, the the possessive language there. Stealing your political secrets and giving them to the government. Ah, the sadness, the hostility of it. This imaginary woman. Mm-hmm. The lockout and the despair of such ideas. I had never been in- stupid enough to call that a dream. She did not say anything about that. 
She looked adorable to me in the khaki shorts and t-shirt and the thong sandals we'd bought at the discount mart. Oh! It's real nice of her not to say anything about your intense racism. And then he tortures her. Oh my god, that scene is upsetting. Then he tortures her in a scene right out of fucking My Sweet Audrina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she's not, she's not up for sex, basically. She's having a bad day. And then there's a bug. There's a palmetto bug. Mm-hmm. A and water bug. A fucking six-inch cockroach. And because she's been acting as though she has a concussion the entire trip. Literally, it feels like she has a head injury, not in that she's stupid. Mm-hmm. I'm not like saying anything against people with traumatic brain injuries i'm saying specifically she is acting disoriented Mm -hmm. and confused and as though she should maybe go to the hospital and drink a lot of water and not fall asleep (laughs) yeah he tortures her with a bug and it's really awful it's not like like when i was a kid my dad used to like catch millers and threaten to throw them at me and then he'd put them outside or whatever this is so much meaner but like for hours he keeps her trapped in the bathroom by suggesting that if she ever comes out, he'll throw this giant cockroach at her. And put it down her shirt. And then she hides in the closet. And, and then he's like, oh, I wouldn't do that. But every time she finally trusts him enough to maybe come out again, he... He he puts it, another jab at her. Yeah. He threatens her again. And then he breaks down the door when he's finally bored of it, but she's now... It's like the worst of Lestat again, where he's like, oh, I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I do these awful things. There are some fanfics that really dig into that part of Lestat, and I can't read them because they're too realistic. Uh Like, this is also upsetting because it's such a realistic behavior. Mm -hmm. Where you just keep twisting. Right. But the book lets it go. But, you know, she was a terrific listener, as he says. Oh, my God. Also, the only descriptive words that exist are terrific and fantastic. He'd always wanted a girl he could read to. So their little vacation goes south uh, because it turns out that the club has been desperately trying to get hold of them because the owner fucked off in a major breach of ethics. But also, he engages in some real sadism at one point. He reads her his favorite book. At one point while she was reading, Dorothy turned to me and said, Oh no, Elliot told her his favorite novel. What is it? And I was like, uh, fucking, is it Catcher in the Rye? And I was like, no. Is it? I don't know why I pulled out Catch-22. That's unfair to Catch-22. <laughs> yeah, I was like, rude. Because <laughs> it's a novel my dad liked. Um, and he likes New Hollywood, and so does this book. Uh, and then my third try, though, I got it. It's fucking on the road. <laughs> and he inflicts this on her. Just reading aloud on the road. And, God, the the effusive language of of how he talks about it and how she agrees about how all these great parts are and how funny and how insightful. And And also how great new Hollywood film is. Um, But then her bros from the club show up and he acts very threatened by them. I think because they have dicks. Again, for a bisexual man, who, by the way, every time there is multiple mentions throughout the novel that you know he's not like one of those those gay gays he wouldn't do anything effeminate he just fucks dudes so he's the worst kind of mask for mask (laughs) it's really because his worst nightmare is being dominated by someone weaker than him like a woman i hate elliot so much um but 
She she turns into a quote wet faced straggle haired waif. So much description of Lisa as a child during the, this section, and like that's supposed to indicate her vulnerability towards him and and how appealing she is in those moments. And <laughs> <sighs> but yeah, basically these other people who work at the club are like. This is extremely not okay. This violates all the rules of the contract that he signed with us. You are abusing your position of power and abusing him. Because, like... And then they take him aside and explain, Don't worry, the lady's freaked out. The little lady has freaked out. And we need you to behave with us, you know, to protect both of your reputations and all of us. So it's not really that she was behaving abusively. She was, and like it's it's very much like, oh, but it was fine because he's into it, the, like it's fine that she broke, literally the foundations of what you know safe, sane, and consensual is based on that but he she was into put it. in place. Mm-hmm. Um. So he goes back to the club, and then she hangs out in New Orleans, getting wasted for a couple more days, having a crisis of faith. But it's and then. Uh, having a weird fetishy moment with a bunch of trans women who clearly just want to go home. But there's this drunk cis lady at their bar and they gotta hustle her out of there. And there's a lot of weird angel talk about these trans ladies that she's staring at and paying not enough money to keep their bar open. No. After hours so that she can gawk at them. Mm Mm-hmm. But Martin comes and picks her up and she spills out yet another long and exhausting monologue to him about and it basically comes down to she has catholic guilt about her kinks yep and y'all there is actually a pretty again for how often this novel um is fucking shitty about rape fantasies and all of that shit there is actually a pretty self-aware and succinct moment early on where uh where basically elliot goes to martin and describes this this greek slavery fantasy because anne is desperately trying to get away from the thing that she's doing which she's doing which is fetishizing chattel slavery (laughs) yeah Um, of africans in the americas mm -hmm. but in the midst of all that there's this really beautifully clarifying sentence where where it talks about you know um There has to be a framework, I said. All very neat. It would be unthinkable if you were really forced, yet there has to be coercion. And honestly, that's a pretty succinct explanation of, as somebody raised Catholic and with a lot of dysphoria, I've done a lot of thinking about about coercion narratives. And that's a pretty succinct version of what makes it appealing and what separates it out from these, from like, violent rape fetish stuff. Is, is this element that you could never do in real life of implicit mental agreement. And it's it's so frustrating to have those tiny little moments of clarity just get washed out and all the rest of that shit. Um, but then after Martin Halifax, the mentor guy that Elliot was mm-hmm. friends with, comes and picks up a sloppy drunk Lisa in New Orleans, she goes back to the club does like five minutes of paperwork they're trying to work out like a mission statement for their business 
which they haven't done for some reason. Which is apparently the biggest crisis they've ever faced, is having to write a mission statement. Well, they were so busy being a top secret conspiracy, which we forgot to mention. Except that apparently everybody knows about them. Like, apparently they advertise in the back pages of magazines. No, no, I mean, before we abandon Lisa's perspective entirely, by the way, the novel tells us- No, no, it ends on her. Fair enough. Before we come back to her in the most mealy-mouthed way possible, and the novel tells us this twice, by the way, because it's very well written, we learned that the club was created (sighs) to cater to rich people who want to be subs but are afraid to be seen as weak. So it's created as a fantasy of everybody coming and being doms. But in fact... But then when you go into... But what if your fantasy is... To be publicly submissive. What if your fantasy is exactly what Elliot has going on? Which is to be humiliated. Mm-hmm. Doesn't sound very effective. But yes, the idea is that the clients who pay money to go to the club can be dominated by the slaves at the club who are sex workers who are paid. But also they're supposed to be submissive at all times. In order to make everything look good so that nobody gets embarrassed by being exposed as a submissive. Um, because apparently every rich person in the world is there, and also all the hot people. Right, right. By the way, you have to pay a lot of money to come to this club, or you can sign up to be a slave, unless but, you're not hot or able-bodied. Right, but the slaves are at top physical condition, and all extremely agile. So all of the slaves are able-bodied, thin, have no diet restrictions because they're fed shitty food. Mm, So their only pleasure will be sex. They are slender. And again, there's no fat fetishists here. There's no amputee fetishists. And I guess you're allowed in if you're fat and you're rich, but... But like... mm, But you gotta pay for that shit. And Lisa's kind of like... Yeah, I know it's classist, but, you know, at least I'm doing good in the world and leading to world peace eventually. For the re- when, when we eliminate the violent rape urge that causes war. Listen. Which is the philosophy of this book? The BDSM will trickle down. No, it won't. We talked about the latrines. Uh, I... I, it's so hard to take seriously a book that wants to be about the praxis of world peace through kink when it's such a narrowly defined vision of this outsider status. And again, Lisa mentions that she knows she is beautiful because if not, she wouldn't be a trainer at the club. But there is this mealy mouth mention of, well, if you're not rich and you're not super hot, I guess you could still work as a trainer. So which is it? Yeah. Um, but then Elliot bugs off before they can see one another. And he goes back to his home in California. And, and she then Lisa to... follows him there. And he yells at her a bunch. And then... Not about the fact that she, like, violated the rules and stuff, but just because she didn't, like... Say, I l- say it back. He, she didn't say it back. And then she does. And then they decide to get married, but also she'll still keep being kinky because he says it's okay. Well, will she? Because she's because she is actively like, I feel like something broken me and I can't do that kind of thing anymore. And well, he says she has to, so. Right. He's like, no, no, you'll want to again eventually. This is definitely not a novel. This about is definitely a- not a guy who's going to pressure you to have threesomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no group sex mentioned at the club either, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's almost as though Anne is trying to be like, this is not at all a novel about a woman who was into 
kinky sex and was also a dominant learning to become a submissive woman in a heteronormative relationship. Oh, by the way, Lisa never actually had good vanilla dick. Right. Elliot That's what's wrong with her. Yep. She never had the chance to have vanilla sex. She literally, the first, uh, the way she understood her sexuality from her time as a teenager was just by reading uh, sadomasochistic sexual fantasies. Like the story of O and the Sleeping Beauty trilogy, you know all those erotic classics. No, she really. straight up does. She fucking name drops herself. She, yep, because Elliot's on the boat to the on the boat to the island and looks over at a bookshelf with the classics of erotic literature on it. And Lisa literally has never had vanilla sex in her whole life, and that's what was missing from her vagina. That's I what died. filled her. Yeah. So, like, the whole weird, it's a very weird message. Nothing mes- fucking happens at the club! It's a weird message for a book that was supposedly about the rights of women to express their sexual fantasies against anti-sex feminism. You gotta read between the lines here, Fry. It's about the rights of women to express their fantasies of being dominated by men. Oh. You know what's fucking upsetting at the end of the day? I would still call this novel less harmful than, less actively harmful than Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm. Because it's not replicable in in as obvious and easy a fashion. Yeah. Like, it is full of upsetting themes and undercurrents, but- Like the fact that Elliot just really wants to do some rapes. As many times as possible. You know, you know how, like, everybody just wants to do a rape. And that is 100% a theme that keeps coming back in her work. Uh-huh. Is the idea that the urge to rape is a universal constant, and it's just our ability to execute it that separates us in stratification. But really, if you got anywhere, you would, too. It's upsetting. It's certainly an upsetting uh, indictment of cis men and Anne's view on them. Yeah, but she likes it, so... She doesn't realize that's what she's doing. Mm-hmm. It's just... I don't know, there's something very... I mean, it's bad. It's a bad novel. It's deeply sleazy. Mm-hmm. And the constant... The constant callbacks to just movies about children that are deeply eroticized. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the G-slur. Lots of that. that, yeah. It's a lot of racism. Yeah, I mean, obviously we don't recommend that you read it. Yeah, no, this is not a fun times fun read. We really had to push through it. Yeah, it's not. Elliot is just loathsome. Lisa is, I don't hate her as a, I, I don't hate her, but she's frustrating to read because of how the narrative treats her. Yeah, she she's very boring. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot in there. This is Anne thinking she wrote a developed female perspective. <laughs> well, she's developed, all right. I know I already made that joke. But you might not have heard it the, that first time, so there's we're not, not sure. There's nothing for me to work with. <laughs> and it's just, it's all read, read Vampire Lestat. Porn. Read some real porn. Watch Secretary mm. instead of reading this book. Because Secretary's, Secretary's good. really fucking good. <sighs> and we may, we got a hold of the movie, uh, and we are planning to do that as a Patreon bonus. Woohoo! Which I suppose brings us into, if you liked this episode, you can find more from us on our SoundCloud by looking for Trash and Treasures, um, which is the name of our mainline show. 
And if you really liked us, we would appreciate if you left a rating or review on your podcatcher of choice because it helps people find us and it's nice. We also, as mentioned, have a Patreon at patreon.com slash trash and treasures, where for $2 a month you get episodes early and access to uh, the wonderful cocktails that Dorothy makes, including non-alcoholic versions if you don't drink. And for five bucks a month, we have monthly bonus episodes, including, as I mentioned, one on the Exit to Eden movie coming up. In the meantime, you can catch, uh, you can get hold of us on social media. We are on Tumblr at trashandtreasurespod.tumblr.com. And we are on Twitter at trashpod. Come give us a shout, oh, shout out on, and we will uh, say hi to you, because we appreciate uh, this time around, I wanted to give a shout out to at she is love itself, who apparently did in fact read Silver Kiss in high school. So we found one. Woo! We hope we didn't ruin your nostalgia. <laughs> oh, and if you would like to email us, we are also available by email. Actually, you can go to our pinned tweet and get more information about that. Trashtreasurespod at gmail.com. So... For our next book club, we will be, and we'll be doing, and well, it's not not a porn book. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah, so next time we'll be doing the book that scarred me uh, a little bit for life in high school, which is Chuck Palahniuk's Haunted. Oh, Haunted. It's, I have a fondness for that book. Uh, it's a mess. Uh-huh. I was very excited when I discovered that it glows in the dark. Y'all, pool drains. This book is a lot. It's it's gonna like be another content-heavy, warning-heavy episode. Like you're gonna bake a carrot cake. Oh, why would you do that to them? <laughs> that is the realest moment ever. God. And on that note, we'll see you next time. Take care of yourselves. See y'all. See y'all.